If 2021 was the year the world began to turn the tide against the pandemic, 2022 will be dominated by the need to adjust to new realities. On the one hand, there are things that have been reshaped by the crisis, such as the new world of work and the future of travel. On the other hand, deeper trends are reasserting themselves, such as the rise of China and the need to tackle climate change. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and this is The World Ahead. Over the coming weeks, this future-gazing podcast series will focus on the key themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on the predictions in The World Ahead 2022, our annual publication. The last couple of years have been difficult for travel. Many international borders were closed and entire fleets of planes were grounded. But in 2021, there was one destination that saw passenger numbers grow like never before. Space. In the past few months, more than 15 civilians have been launched into space by private companies. SpaceX, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin. One of these private space missions really stood out, the Inspiration4 mission in September. It was the first civilian-only orbital spaceflight. Its four crew members circled the globe in low Earth orbit for three days in a SpaceX Dragon capsule. The Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin flights, by contrast, were suborbital and carried people into space for just a few minutes in each case. You know, it's the highlight of my life. It's life-changing. The pilot of the Inspiration4 mission was Dr. Cyan Proctor, a geology professor and science communicator who's wanted to be an astronaut since she was a child. And to other people, I have to say, don't give up on your dreams. I went to space in my 50s, so I think that we need to think about achieving our dreams all the way till the end. And so that's about investing in lifelong learning and really putting yourself out there and letting people know what it is that you want to accomplish. And so you can have those fabulous 50s, those stellar 60s and those sensational 70s. Well, let's talk a little bit about your journey. What was going through your head just before liftoff? Oh, right before liftoff, that was like, okay, we can going to do this. <laughs> this is awesome. I was so excited. People asked me if I was nervous or scared at that moment. I was like, no, I was so scared and terrified that the moment would never happen, that I would never get selected to go to space and that along the way I'd get hurt or sick and it would be taken away from me. I was far more terrified of that than actually going to space. Right. Well, I was going to say, what was the most frightening thing about the journey? Evidently, it wasn't the takeoff. But also, what was the most surprising thing? Oh, the most surprising thing was the view. I mean, to to go and see the Earth and, and see the reflectivity and, and the colours and all of that was one thing. But then to realise, because we could slide up into the cupola, which is, was the largest window ever flown in space so far, Because we could slide up above our shoulders, we could see the sphere of the earth and to look out and see the edge of blackness all around the earth and the star field and the moon rising from around the corner of the earth. It was spectacular. Now, people talk about the overview effect of seeing the earth from space and how it has a sort of mystical impact on them. What was your experience? That's something that's really interesting because I've known about the overview effect. And as a geoscientist, I understand a lot more about the earth's processes and climate science and all of those things. So I kind of already had that awareness. But 
It was only in the last year and a half during COVID that I became an artist and a poet. And so I came with this new kind of sense of awareness and awe. And when I looked at the earth for the first time, I kept thinking, wow, it's like a portrait in motion. All of the colors, the way it swirls and looks and the whites and the the clouds. Now, more prosaically, you were basically in a orbiting Fiat 500 with three other people for three days. How did you manage basic things like eating and sleeping? Well, you know, at first you're trying to figure it all out. Your sleeping bag needs to be tied down because everything's floating, but it's it's really to keep you from floating away. And I remember sleeping and I would wake up and I would have some spatial disorientation because I'd be like, wait, what? Because you'd slightly move during the night into like a little bit of a different orientation and you'd be like, whoa, this is weird, or even the sensation of floating. After coming back for about two weeks, I dreamt almost 90% of the time about floating in space. Just that sensation, my brain trying to make sense of this magical, amazing experience that just happened. And what about the food? What do you actually in practice get to eat on on a trip like this? Surprisingly, they tried to give us healthy food and we rejected it. (laughs) And we said, this is like a a backpacker trip. You know, three days on orbit, you can create a cooler that you can bring fresh food. So we had pizza, which was my favorite food. And so I'm so thrilled to say that I ate pizza in space. Uh, But we also (laughs) had a BLT. So you could eat things that astronauts on, say, the space station can't eat because they're there for longer. They can't just take a cooler that will sustain them for three days. Right. They can't just pack all M&Ms and nothing else. Like <laughs> they have a very nutrition, a balanced nutritional diet that they must have because they're up there for so long and the impact of space on their body and the changes. But for three days, it was really nice because we got to pick things that were comfort food and food and mood go together. And so for it was so important for us to have um, our meals be something that we actually enjoyed eating. And then another thing is that they do get fresh food on the International Space Station when they have a resupply mission, but it only lasts a couple of days. And so very fortunate. But they also get to heat their meals. And we didn't have a heating or cooling element besides the cooler. And so we could only bring up cold or frozen things or prepackaged meals that didn't require any kind of hydration. Finally, how do you think things will develop in 2022 in particular? What do you think we can expect to see next year when it comes to this opening up of space? Well, I think we're going to see a lot more uh, civilians going to space. I mean, if you look at this past year, the number, not only did we have 12 individuals from the United States fly up, we had a film crew and an actress go up to the International Space Station. And so when we're thinking about next year, I'd like to see us double or triple those numbers as much as possible. And this becomes one of the things that, you know, people start to say, wow, there's a place for me in space. When you think about kids and people who traditionally would not have thought of a place for themselves, whether you're an artist. And I think that one of the things when we talk about opening up access is getting that into the imagination of everyone all around the world, that if this is something that they want, that it is achievable. With me now are Oliver Morton, The Economist's senior briefings editor, and Tim Cross, our technology editor. Oliver, if I could start with you, we heard there from Cyan Proctor about what it's like to go into space as a tourist. Is this something that 
everyone should be getting excited about and as we see more of this in the coming year? Well, that depends. If you're someone who's actually thinking of doing it, you probably should be excited. But if you're someone who cares about sort of like the great historical sweep of things, no, not really at all. The suborbital tourist stuff is interesting and it may possibly increase the number of people who want to invest in orbital stuff but in and of itself it's basically joyriding and I'm happy for those people who get joy from it. What would be interesting would be if private sector flights were servicing private sector interests. If there were actually hotels being built in space rather than the space station being reused, that sort of thing, which is on the drawing boards, but certainly not something we're going to be seeing in the year ahead, that might start to make a real change. Okay, so we're seeing all this competition between private companies offering essentially joyrides into space. What about competition between big global powers next year? 2021 ended quite badly from this point of view with the uh, test of a Russian anti-satellite missile. And I think that in 2022, most of the competition between great powers in space will be building up their capacity to both use space as a way of fighting wars and also to fight wars in space. It's interesting that for the first time, China will, by the end of 2022, have a permanently occupied, permanently crewed space station. And you will see some further move in America's currently unbelievably high expense, low delivery moon program. But in general, the real competition in space, and this has been true for much of history, is going to be in the military arena. Tim, what are you going to be following closely in 2022 when it comes to this race to do interesting things in space? Well, I think the most interesting of the private companies that that are experimenting with space by miles is SpaceX, simply because they have the biggest capability. They can actually go into orbit, unlike uh, Virgin Galactic and unlike Blue Origin so far, and they can lift and are lifting significant amounts of stuff into orbit. And there's two things I think you want to keep an eye out for with SpaceX. One is their latest rocket, and the next is their new business plan. And the two are kind of linked together. So the rocket is an absolute beast of a machine called Starship. And when and if this thing does fly, it'll be the biggest and most powerful rocket built since the Saturn V. It started life as something called the Mars Colony Transporter, which gives you an idea of what Elon Musk wants to do with it in in the long run. In the short run, what he's likely to do with it is use it to turbocharge Starlink. Now, SpaceX's ultimate goal is to settle human beings on Mars. This is a massively expensive venture that not even Elon Musk can pay for with his own money. So their sort of intermediate plan is they're going to turn themselves into a telecoms firm. They're already doing this. So what they've done is they've been launching thousands and thousands of satellites into orbit, the idea being to provide an internet service pretty much anywhere on on the surface of the planet. And instead of flying the satellites high up and having a small number of them, which means the service is slow and you get this sort of lag that interferes, makes it all feel kind of uncomfortable to use. You fly thousands and thousands of these things in a very, very low orbit and that gets rid of the lag problem it means that one satellite serves only a relatively small number of customers so the idea with starlink is you can get something that's pretty close to the terrestrial broadband anywhere on earth and what they want to do initially is is sell this to people who can't get terrestrial broadband because they live in the boonies or whatever but in the long term there are all kinds of potential uses for it you could use it to do backhaul for mobile phone towers so you could expand your mobile phone coverage to places that wouldn't otherwise be economic you can install it on things like ships or trains or oil rigs perhaps in the future depending on how the antennas work you could even install it on smaller things like trucks or maybe even cars and so the idea is we will sort of finally at last if and when Starlink is fully deployed, there will be no part of the world from which you can't access the internet. 
Indeed, though, one consequence of having thousands of satellites in low Earth orbit is that they interfere with astronomy, as we explained in our recent Babbage podcast. Anyway, how about you, Oliver? What do you think are the exciting things to look out for in space next year? And what are the prospects for international cooperation rather than rivalry in space? I think the most important thing happening in space next year will be the first suborbital slash orbital flights of Starship. As Tim said, it's a remarkable machine. It's considerably more powerful than the Saturn V. And in sort of like one lump, it takes up something bigger than the Chinese space station. So, you know, this is an extraordinary thing. And if it works as a reusable system, then the economics and possibilities of spaceflight will change greatly. But the area you asked about cooperation, the most important area we need cooperation in in space is in dealing with orbital debris which is potentially a show-stopping problem for especially the use of low Earth orbit, as Tim was describing. I mean, if you put up tens of thousands of satellites, you have to be really, really careful that you know how to bring them down and out of orbit after you've finished using them, because they will all have failure rates, and you know, even a small failure rate, you get failures around 10,000, they will all have lifetimes. So we really do need to take much more seriously the problem of space congestion, which is made even worse by things like Russians testing anti-satellite missiles. In terms of near-term space missions or near-term learning about space, Um, The Mars missions have some potential, but it's actually terrestrial and possibly orbital telescopes looking at exoplanets around other stars that I think are are the place where the real excitement lives at the moment. And are we going to see any movement on that in 2022? Yes, we do, Um, though not necessarily for exoplanets, but one of the most exciting telescopes in the world sees what's called rather romantically first light next year, and that's the Vera Rubin telescope, which allows astronomers to take a sort of like constant view of the sky refreshing more frequently than once a week looking at the whole sky in quite some detail and the expectation and excitement about this is that not only will you see lots of variation that you already know about but you'll also see new sorts of things there are ways in which the sky may be varying that we would simply never have seen because we don't look at the whole sky frequently enough so i think in terms of the thing pointed away from the Earth that I'm most excited about next year, it would be the Vera Rubin Observatory in Chile. Thank you, Ollie and Tim. In a moment, we'll look at another aspect of the new space industry, its relationship with science fiction. But first, a quick reminder, if you want unlimited access to The Economist app and website, or a printed copy sent directly to your door every week, you need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. Space tourism is not the only industry that seeks to capitalise on the widespread enthusiasm for space exploration. Science fiction books and films also cater to space fans and have in some cases inspired people to build real rockets and become astronauts. Now these two symbiotic industries are getting closer than ever as rival Russian and American ventures race to produce the first movie filmed partly in orbit. Rachel Lloyd, The Economist's Deputy Culture Editor, explains. In October 2021, William Shatner, who played Captain Kirk on Star Trek, went into space for the first time. Space, a final frontier. He went into space with Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' rocketry firm, but he quipped that he'd been hearing about space for quite a long time now. It was so moving to me. This experience has been something unbelievable. 
William Shatner is one of several movie stars now going into space. Engine ignition and liftoff of Soyuz MS-19 with an actress and her producer. Also in October 2021, Russia sent an actor and a director up to the International Space Station to film some scenes for an upcoming film called Vizov, which means the challenge. The actor is playing a surgeon who's dispatched to operate on a cosmonaut. And it's not just Russia. In May 2020, America, with Doug Lyman and Tom Cruise, announced a project that would be supported by NASA and SpaceX, Elon Musk's rocketry firm, to make a film up there. There's no more details that have emerged from that, but they have said that it's an active development. Filmmakers have been fascinated by space since the beginning. One of the first short films, Le Voyage dans la Lune in 1902, was about astronomers propelled to the moon in a cannon, and it was an international hit. Filmmakers were interested in space, obviously through the space race in the mid-20th century, but it's continued up to the present day with films like Gravity, First Man, Hidden Figures. You can see that filmmakers are fascinated by what happens beyond Earth. Both Russia and America have been quite open about the fact that they want these new media depictions to inspire the next generation of, of engineers, of astronauts, of theoretical physicists. Russia's space agency says it strives to popularise Russia's space activities. A former administrator at NASA said, we need popular media to inspire a new generation, to make NASA's ambitious plans a reality. Oliver, we heard there about this long-standing relationship between science fiction and science fact, perfectly encapsulated by William Shatner's flight into space recently. So what are some of the best examples of this interaction between the two? Well, I think two good examples are Frau and Mont by Fritz Lang, made in the early 1930s, which used the most up-to-date understanding of rocketry to try and inform itself. The, the most striking innovation of Frau and Mont is that it invented the countdown. Uh, when you hear going 10, 9, 8, you'll remember that you often see at the beginning of films or old films similar countdowns uh, in order to allow timing synchronisation. The countdown as a way of producing tension at a launch is a basically cinematic invention that has now become a commonplace in the world. I suppose the other film that you would want to hold out particularly would be 2001 A Space Odyssey because it was so thoroughly informed by the sense of the technically possible that then existed. But just looking at, say, Jeff Bezos, he's always been obsessed with Star Trek. The uh, voice assistant that I'm not going to mention the name of because bad things will happen is essentially his attempt to build the Star Trek computer that you talk to and that it answers back. A Blue Origin is a further continuation of his, his Star Trek obsession, isn't it? No, I don't think so, because the interesting thing about Star Trek, or one of the interesting things about Star Trek, if we want to limit ourselves, is that it foresees an entirely post-capitalist society in which Jeff Bezos, as far as I know, has no interest whatsoever. Um, what Bezos is really influences is a strand of science fiction, of science fiction slash science fact that you see in the space colonization movement of the 1970s, of whom the sort of most remarkable spokesperson was Gerard O'Neill, a professor at Princeton, who imagined huge factories in the sky and huge habitats in the sky and basically moving earthly industry out into the sky so that um, Earth could become a recovered 
beautiful, ecologically whole planet. And to the extent that he has a dream of space, it's that dream of the industrialization of space for possibly the saving of the Earth and just for the expansion of the human race. I mean, Jeff Bezos talks about there eventually being a trillion inhabitants of the solar system. Uh, in Bezos's view, space is a place where you do all the things that might damage the environment and save the environment on Earth. Tim, do you have favourite examples of this interaction between um, science fact and science fiction? I suppose the big one would be Bezos's great rival in space, which is Elon Musk. And Elon Musk, to some very large extent, seems to be being influenced by the works of a science fiction writer called Ian M. Banks. The drone ships that SpaceX uses to catch its rockets, um, those are named after spaceships in Banks's fiction. So one's called Just Read the Instructions, and the other's called Of Course I Still Love You, because one of Banks's many fun innovations was the whimsical names he gave his starships, which sort of try to, in some way, some jokey way, reflect their function. And it's not just space either. So Musk's other business, or one of his many other businesses, is one called Neuralink, which is trying to invent something called a neural lace, which is his word, or Banks's word, in fact, for a brain-machine interface. And that, that too comes straight from science fiction. And I think there's an interesting tension here too. As Ollie pointed out, there would be no place in the federation of Star Trek for someone like, like Jeff Bezos. And Ian Banks' big thing was to imagine a sort of post-scarcity society where hyper-intelligent AI and we should point out at this point that Musk also funds a big AI research organisation, basically mines asteroids and rearranges solar systems to such a ludicrous degree that scarcity is completely a thing of the past. And the humans that these mines keep around essentially as pets just sort of busy themselves with fads and, and fashion and the minutiae of sort of social hierarchy. And it's a state of affairs that a few left-wing writers have now retroactively dubbed fully automated luxury space communism. And that's what Banks was all about. And in a, a fully automated luxury space communist society. To be fair, Ian was a space socialist more than a space communist. But yes, that's absolutely right. And there is a strong left-wing tradition, history in science fiction, that is, seems to have an inspirational role towards entrepreneurial capitalist expansion into space. OK, well, finally, then we've got this mission that's due to happen in 2022 that sounds like a Hollywood movie, but is in fact real, called DART, which involves crashing into an asteroid. How does that compare? How does the actual version of this mission compare with the Hollywood version? Well, the asteroid isn't heading towards the Earth, which is quite important, and it's all being done automatically. They are both ways of looking at the fact that, in principle, asteroids present a real threat to the Earth. At the moment, though, this planetary defence idea is, to my mind, somewhat overblown. I'm someone who actually backed the idea of thinking more about planetary defence in the 1990s, but we now know the orbits of most of the larger asteroids that might hit the Earth, and none of them are going to do so in the near future. And so we're looking down closer and closer to smaller asteroids. And yeah, it's interesting to see if you can push an asteroid around. And, you know, it may be that we're very unlucky and it turns out to be a skill we want to use. But it also justifies things like the animation that was recently sent to me by Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in America of just how effective a one megaton nuclear bomb would be if deployed against an asteroid on, on an inbound trajectory. And I'm more worried about excuses for making more one megaton nuclear weapons than I am about small asteroids. Thank you both very much. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure as always. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. You can read more about these stories and other themes and trends for the coming year in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2022, which is on newsstands now and available online at economist.com slash worldahead2022. This podcast was produced by Simon Jarvis and the executive producer was Sandra Schmorelli. 
I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs> 